Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, Seattle's number one stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios on the shores of beautiful Puget Sound. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in the Pacific Northwest theater scene and on the big screen. Since 2020, we've been bringing you entertainment news and views, celebrating classic Hollywood, mixing cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interviewing talented local actors and directors, and chatting with industry experts from L.A. to Broadway to the U.K. Welcome to episode 71. This week, we're pleased to welcome to the podcast Kayla Boy, writer, producer, and star of the one-woman show Call Me Elizabeth, chronicling the early life of Elizabeth Taylor. Set in May 1961, the play is inspired by Taylor's conversations with writer Max Lerner as they discuss plans for a biography. Through a morning session with Lerner at the Beverly Hills Hotel, Taylor rediscovers her sense of self following her 1961 Academy Awards triumphant recovery from a nearly fatal battle with pneumonia. The play examines Taylor's career, life, and loves, chronicling her survival in the face of adversity and tragedy, and illuminating the core compassion of her character that inspired her later activism in the fight against HIV-AIDS. Kayla's a Chicago-based artist whose credits include productions with Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Drury Lane Theater, Porchlight Music Theater, Mercury Theater Chicago, Music Theater Works, Brightside Theater, Citadel Theater, Fireside Theater, Capital City Theater, Big Fork Summer Playhouse, and the Huron Playhouse. Whew. As an arts administrator, she's worked in development, marketing, and finance for Goodman Theater and Writers Theater, and she's served as a producer for Steppenwolf Theater Company's Garage Rep Series. As a consultant for the Artistic Fundraising Group, her portfolio includes work for Arts of Life, Brightside Theater, Chicago Composers Orchestra, Chicago Mosaic School, Oak Park Festival Theater, and Snow City Arts. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she served as executive director of the Youngstown Playhouse, and she holds a BA in professional writing and editing from Youngstown State University. Kayla is also a certified nonprofit professional through the Nonprofit Leadership Alliance. You can find out more about her work at kaylaboy.com and about the show at callmeelizabeth.com. Kayla joins us from Old Town Pasadena this evening. Welcome to the show, Kayla. Welcome. Thank you both for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, we know you're extremely busy between two weekends of big shows here. So we first became aware of your show through a Facebook post from our mutual friend and past guest from episode 25, the inestimable Frank Ferrante, the literally living embodiment of Groucho Marx, who he portrays in his own solo performance piece, An Evening with Groucho. I absolutely love seeing actors step into the skin of their heroes. So tell us what first led you to your fascination with Elizabeth Taylor and what prompted you to write this intimate tribute to her as a woman and an artistic talent. Well, thank you so much for that question. Similar to a lot of people, I was drawn to the old MGM movies at an early age, uh, watching them on TCM with my grandparents. And they usually have a screening of National Velvet every so often. So I was exposed to that piece uh, when I was very young and then kind of got introduced to more and more of Elizabeth Taylor's repertoire as I grew older throughout the years. But when I was um, first arriving into, into my own theatrical career, I was inspired by the solo genre in particular by having seen shows such as Frank Ferrante's Groucho, as well as Ron Keaton's Churchill one-man show, which he has done in Chicago and off-Broadway. And there was also a fabulous one-person show about Rose Kennedy that I also saw in Chicago when I had just arrived. And I said to myself, well, who, what story can I portray at my age of someone that people know about 
but might not know the whole story and that I could maybe hopefully portray um, in an authentic sort of tribute fashion. I knew I had um, bushy eyebrows. Uh, I did not have the violet eyes, but contacts would help. And so I thought, of, well, you know what? How about Elizabeth Taylor? Now, she's rather ambitious person to start with. Uh, she, no one else can, no one can imitate her. She was one of a kind. But what, what draws me to her, and I think why her legacy still stands, is that she had such a fascinating life outside of the movies that she did. She was a philanthropist, an activist when it was not cool to say the word AIDS. She drew people's attention to issues that were really affecting people in the immediate present. And she wasn't afraid. She, she made statements and she made her life had a meaning outside of her career as an actress. It's so funny. She would often deride her appearances on screen later in life, saying that she had been kind of a, a playmate for animal guest stars like The Horse in National Velvet or Lassie Come Home. She was also in... Her greatest legacy, I think, is her legacy as a human being and someone that would amplify causes that were not being talked about. So through Call Me Elizabeth, my goal was to really explore the origin story of this kind of superhero of pop culture, trying to explore what goes into making a person in their early life and why she was drawn later on to helping those in need through her compassion. And so my show focuses just on the first third of her life. She's only 29 when the show takes place, but there is so much material. It was very hard for me to edit out, but that's kind of where we find her with Call Me Elizabeth. It's 1961 and she's 29 years old and trying to face down the next chapter of her life. Is there a sort of fluency that you acquire when, when doing a character? I think of learning a foreign language where you eventually get to the point where you start to think in that language. When you're playing a character like this in, in, in such a forum, do you get a fluency like that where you start to think like you think she would think and almost embody it to that extent? Yes, it, it's so funny you say that. There are a few qualities of our personalities that I identify with her. We are both, if you're into astrology, we're both Sagittarius rising. Uh, so she was always looking for the next adventure and challenge. And I have to say with this show, it's always a challenge because the pressure is so great. I mean, you want to do her justice in a respectful manner. I mean, she is gone, but I'm trying to just help her story come to life once more. There's a lot of people my age and younger that aren't familiar with the details about her early life, which still surprises me you think she's such an icon everybody has to know elizabeth taylor but there's a lot of things people still don't know so yeah talking like her um trying to nail down her her manner of speech which evolved over the years uh, later in life she did adopt a more of a british affectation when she was married to richard burton her voice took on more of a british accent um she had kind of an interesting speaking style it was a hybrid of of a british and MGM and American. <laughs> so sometimes after the show, I catch myself in her cadence and have to stop myself because it's it's its own thing. So you're kind of catching me at a point where I'm I'm somewhat in it, but not <laughs> trying to find myself again. Well, she had two chances to learn it with Richard as well, right? So double double she exposure. She did those two marriages. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. 
kind of the Cary Grant mid-Atlantic thing. It's like, which direction is he trying to go with this? He's just straddling both sides. That's know? right, exactly. <laughs> well, she was, and she was English, I, and that's not something I didn't know until you know, not too long ago, actually. That that she was born in London and she was English. I would have sworn she was American. Right? Her mother was American, Sarah Taylor. She was a, an American stage actress and went over to London and met her father, Francis Taylor, who was an art collector. And they got to travel the world with his art gallery, selling paintings and acquiring fine art. And she eventually, the family moved to Pasadena, uh, where the show is happening right now, um, when she was young, before uh, World War II occurred in the middle of the war and early war days to escape the conflict in the Blitz. So that is why they primarily relocated to California to be with her mother's family in the early days. So she's a hybrid <laughs> by coastal. <laughs> Your location for the interview tonight is perfect. It is. It really is. <laughs> you talked about how you, you want, you want the details to make perfect sense. You want people who loved Elizabeth Taylor to recognize her in you on stage. That also goes into understand uh, the details of the set, uh, the types of uh, clothing you wear, the set pieces, things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I understand they're all from that era. Yes, that's that's a wonderful observation, Matt. Thank you. That is one of the my favorite things about doing theater is the details because that can really make or break an experience, especially for those of us that are nerds out there that really <laughs> love to hone in on like, You're why talking is to that? two of them. Yes, yeah. like, <laughs> why did you choose that piece of furniture or that piece of clothing? And so with this show, well, whenever I do it, as of late, I have been coming into theaters and using their scenery on set. I bring along my own props and my costume. So my costume's a vintage 1961 dress. My wig was custom made to be her hairstyle from 1961, which is a very specific style. And then the magazines that I reference, my props are all magazine issues that are from May 1961 or just prior. So everything is actually from that period. The songs you will hear in my pre-show playlist are all from that period. And I think that really does the extra mile of getting the audience in the headspace and in this time period because it is a very specific point in her life that we are in so the more we can do to set the stage and bring people in i think the better so i i try my best uh to cover those bases as i can well the details make all the difference and uh do, do you dip yourself in a white diamonds before you get on stage that's the question. <laughs> that is the last missing piece now if people were that close to smell my perfume uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I do have it on my birthday wish list. I would love someone to get me some white diamonds. Yes. There you now, go. I do. I do have some great prop jewelry. They are not actual 29 and a half carat diamond jewelry, but they look really great under the stage lights. So I do what I can. Well, you do a great <laughs> job. You really, you really put people in mind of her. I mean, just from the photos uh, online on social media, it's like, wow, very believable. Thank you. Have and you met um, some people who, who are super fans along the way that have that have come and talked to you after the show and and give you some feedback about how well you've uh, you you've accomplished this? Oh goodness, that's a wonderful question. You know, it's so wonderful being able to perform this show in Southern California because people did know the people I refer to in the show. A volunteer who works in the box office of the Sierra Madre Playhouse 
grew up with Debbie Reynolds. Their fathers worked together, and I refer to Debbie a few times in the show, respectfully in character, though. And so it's always a question of, I'm hoping I'm, I'm referring to these actual people in a manner that is truthful and respectful for the context. And everything I do is done with love. And I've been very fortunate not to have anyone as of yet be irate or, or disappointed about how I refer to these real people. But yeah, every time I do it, it's interesting. I did have I did the show for the very first time last summer in the Hollywood Fringe Festival. And just by happenstance, I had paid a visit to Forest Lawn to pay my respects to Elizabeth's gravesite. And when I came home to the place I was staying for this engagement, I met a mutual friend of one of Elizabeth Taylor's physicians. And her personal doctor, based off of that interaction, came to my show that that weekend and said and corroborated what I say in the show. He said, the first thing she said to me was the first thing you say. My name is Elizabeth. Do not call me Liz. She hated being called Liz. Her brother would make fun of her growing up. He called her Lizzie the Lizard. And then reporters started using it as a shorthand in headlines because it fit better in print. And she just, it sounded like a hiss to her. She hated it. So when her doctor said to me, her name was Elizabeth, I was like, yes, that's the title. That's the whole point. Uh, get it right. Get the name right. So he came. He loved it. I really appreciated that. And then during my research, I actually was fortunate enough to be connected to one of her husbands, uh, the late Senator John Warner. We had a wonderful hour phone conversation in which he provided some great insights into her general outlook on life when they were married and her sense of humor and he said, you know, I don't know how I can help you. Our, our marriage takes place after your show. I said, well, just first off, the chance to talk to you, a U.S. senator and former secretary of the Navy, was huge enough for me. But second off, just to know, like, what it was like to be around her essence and her spirit, I think, as an actor, helps me leaps and bounds try to embody the role. Because I, I view it more as a role. I'm not trying to be her because she was one of a kind, but trying to, to do her a good tribute and tell her story right is is my main goal with this. Going back to, to the actual show, so one thing Matt and I are, are proud of is, is that our show came out of COVID and we're really excited to see all the great works and, and, and things that are um, also coming out of COVID. In fact, your show came out of COVID. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, how that writing process happened and how maybe the pandemic affected your, your process? Well, this show had its first stage reading in October 2019, and I had received, I was lucky enough to receive a few grants, and I was supposed to use that funding to do it within 2020, and I had this funding support, and then the pandemic hit, and I was kind of at a crossroads, like, what do I do with this funding support? Do I give it back, or do I follow through and somehow still do this show in a pandemic? So what I ended up doing was filming it. And I filmed it in my apartment building. Uh, my director became a film director. Uh, she was wonderful, Erin Craft, in staging our, our film set, as it were. We had a three-shot shoot. And we filmed it and we streamed it uh, through partnerships with theaters, including uh, Portsight Music Theater in Chicago 
in my hometown theater, the Youngstown Playhouse in Ohio. And then it was picked up by Broadway On Demand. And we were able to stream it through the Edinburgh Fringe Virtual Festival during the pandemic. So it it's so interesting. It reached a larger audience even before I had ever done it in front of people. And I had never intended for it to be a film because we have plenty of wonderful Elizabeth Taylor films. I wanted this to be a live drama, a theatrical experience. So the end goal was always to do it in front of people. And so to do it now um, at the Sierra Madre Playhouse in front of live audiences is so thrilling because this is how it was meant to be seen and to be able to, to be in a room and feel what it was like at the specific moment in the room with someone is, is very dramatic for me as a stage actress. So I have had a whole journey with this and uh, maybe would like to film it again at some point, uh, you know, to capture it for archival as it currently is. But it definitely has evolved uh, since that first pandemic shoot. I've added a couple pages back on the nest uh, beats. Having an audience helps me know like when jokes are landing and what the pacing of the show is, because again, it's supposed to be a stage play. So it has had a whole journey up to this point. And I, I still feel like we're just getting started with it. Every time I do it, it's a new experience. Is there a certain difference? I won't say more or less, unless there is, but a different sort of pressure maybe that you put on yourself to in this role than another role that uh, is one that, you know, you're reading off the page because this one you wrote, you created your, your everything behind this. So do you put a little more pressure on yourself or is it a different kind of pressure? That's a great question. I think most of the pressure comes from trying to portray a real person. Uh, most other shows that I've done, it's been great because they're all fiction and we're just there to have a good time and there's really no stakes, as it were. This is like, oh my gosh, people knew her. People personally knew her and her friends and lived through these events. Everything in the show that I refer to actually happened. It's all true. So trying to be able to do it justice and it's so hard to edit. There are definitely things that I have left out for brevity's sake. The show that I have right now is 75 minutes, no intermission, but there's definitely a second act there. There's a third act there. And what I usually find is people are saying, you know, we want more. We want to learn more. I'm like, great. That's the next show or that's act two, which I don't have just yet, but stick around. So that's that's been my challenge. There's been so much to try to pack in that I try to just really focus on what I what I have found are some of the most formative events and um, dramatic things that she has gone through to this point in time. So um, that's the pressure for me is trying to get it right and um, also acknowledge this is an interpretation. Uh, it's trying to get the essence down. Uh, but yes, there's a lot less pressure when you're in a big show and everyone else has their own roles and you're just on stage for maybe 10 minutes. This is just me for uh, 75 minutes and <laughs> hopefully I don't lose my voice or something. Um, so, so far, so good. Uh, been able to pull through and it's it's been great to try to find as a performer your personal stamina with a solo show. I think that's one of the hardest genres you can do is try to keep the audience with you. Uh, that whole time. So I'm always so thankful for the the audiences that come and, and stay with me. It's it's really a wonderful mutual experience and fulfilling because, you know, you, you did this together. 
Yeah, and you do all the blocking and everything yourself, right? So if this moves to a different theater, then you've you've got to look at all of those aspects of what it would take to put the show on uh, another theater. It's just it's it's an incredible achievement, I think, to put something yeah, undertaking like this yeah. together. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, uh, my uh, director for the film, Aaron Kraft, she was really helpful for me in trying to establish some of those dramatic arcs. So those broad strokes still stay with me, but it's true. Every time I go to a new space, I have to ask and assess for each theater. Okay, what items do you have in stock? Do you have a couch? Okay, if not, can we use a chair? Or here at the Sumera Madre Playhouse, a settee as like the main focus piece. But there are definitely things I need to be functional. Like I need some kind of table to put props on. I need something to put a phone on. I need um, a couple of certain items that are consistent with the show. Otherwise, I'm very nimble and adaptable to um, whatever that theater might happen to have. Because at the end of the day, it is mostly about the words and the story that is being told. But it's meant to travel. So that's the one thing I love about this piece is that I can pretty much do it anywhere where there's a stage and a chair. So that's helpful too. Well, we can probably already all name our favorite Elizabeth Taylor film. Uh, at least I hope most people can name their favorite Elizabeth Taylor film. Uh, Greg and I were discussing uh, earlier today. His is Suddenly Last Summer from 59. So just a couple years before your play is uh, is set. Uh, mine, you mentioned it already, hands down, National Velvet from 1944. I grew up watching that. Uh, big Mickey Rooney fan. Just watched it with my my own daughters about six months ago. They loved it. Uh, it's just such a, a perfect movie. Uh, but aside from watching her films, and you, you did brush on this a little bit, you have spoken with some people, uh, her physician and others that you um, have kind of been able to bounce things off of. But what other kind of research did you do? A lot of reading? What was that like? That's a great question. Well, of course, you have to start with the films and the appearance. And as an actor, trying to identify what were those recognizable uh, vocal characteristics and and physical things such as like sight lines and her manner of laughing. I think a laugh is a really important part of a person getting a role right. But in terms of books, I pretty much every book that was out there, there's been so many unauthorized biographies of her I had the pleasure of reading. Uh, there was recently a new one, an authorized biography that was just released by the estate by Kate Anderson Brower that I've just started reading that is, is very wonderful. Um, but a lot was also gleamed by other individuals' biographies. Eddie Fisher wrote an autobiography, and there was a lot of information in that piece that helped inform me. Um, not a lot of it very kind to Eddie himself, uh, the way he was rather disparaging of, of both Debbie Reynolds and Elizabeth Taylor, um, saying rather mean things about their physical appearances um, like later in life. And I was like, you know, you don't have too much to say, sir. How about you stick to your own life and focus on yourself? But his book was interesting, a very interesting source. Um, but I also spoke to um, the unseen person in the show is Max Lerner. And he was a columnist and a writer and a philosopher. And it's not really widely known or spoken of because it didn't really go anywhere. But he and Elizabeth Taylor had a friendship that was a little more than just friendship, but it was fun for both of them for a certain amount of time. And Michaud is set in the construct of, he actually started as her first ghost writer. She did start writing 
an autobiography during this time period after she had been officially pronounced dead and she hadn't she's back she's she's won her academy award for butterfield eight she's about to resume shooting for cleopatra but she still feels kind of at a loss like her story hasn't been told correctly in the press there's been a lot of hatred coming at her for her relationship with eddie fisher and she really just wants to set the story straight so she has asked Max Lerner to start recording these sessions to start her book. And they end up abandoning this project, this partnership, because things went a little too far beyond friendship for the comfort of either spouse. So they tabled it. But this time period does form the basis for her autobiography, which was released later in the 60s. And so there's a lot of material in that book that she refers to about her early life that is used in the play that um, is factual, but it was eventually published with a different writer attached to it. So this all happened, but it was it was adapted for for the sake of drama. Well, growing up in the in the 70s, as I'm aging myself, uh, my first uh, introduction to Elizabeth Taylor was, you know, as Matt alluded to before with the the White Diamonds ad and 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 a lot of the things that happened and and some of the I don't know if you want to call it strangeness or whatever around her uh, persona as she got older eccentricities uh, yes, yes there you go that's yeah. that's the much better way of putting it <laughs> but you're capturing in the essence of her. you mentioned that before the essence of Elizabeth Taylor from a period way before that and you mentioned there's a lot you know youth today you know aren't going to know this Elizabeth Taylor if they know Elizabeth Taylor at all which is sad but can you go into a little more detail about that essence, that specific essence of this period of time that you're trying to capture? And if you've had any feedback from youth or how well it's been received from some of the people who may not have known uh, much about her. You know, I actually had a gun audience member at a talk back this weekend ask me what I have learned doing this show, what I've learned from Elizabeth Taylor's life by doing this show. And I think there are lessons from her life that can be applied to anyone, however you identify, whatever age you are. The takeaways I have from her legacy are, number one, nothing is guaranteed. Live each day to the fullest. She loved living life almost to excess, which is why we were so captivated by her. It's like we all wish we could just like go jet set and go do things to extremes, which she did, but she also balance that out with paying it forward and by being an activist and an advocate for others. She just lived in such extremes. It was, it was almost too much that uh, live every day. Like it's the last and then speak out. If you see injustice being done, if you see others that aren't able to speak out for themselves, I think we've been empowered a little bit more over the last few years to, to say things that can be done at different levels. You don't have to necessarily take to social media. You can volunteer at a local shelter. You can can do things on a small level of kindness and still have a big impact, even if we don't have the resources of, of celebrities per se. While those platforms are very helpful, anyone can make life better for other people. So that is a huge thing for me with her. But yeah, there are so many details of her life that I think are timeless. And that is definitely the way into her story for a lot of younger audiences is that 
oh yeah, my mom used to wear that perfume or I know about the jewelry or I've, I've seen fan pop art on, on social media and it's, she's very pretty and you know, it's pretty much her and Marilyn Monroe are the two most recognizable icons of the mid mid century Hollywood. But most of all, she was like, she was like the last star created by the studio system because ironically she was someone that helped end the studio system with her million dollar contract for Cleopatra that show went so much over budget it pretty much bankrupt Fox Studios and her last MGM show under contract was Butterfield 8 and she won the Academy Award for it but she hated the show so much because she felt like she was trapped into doing it to fulfill her contract to MGM. So she eventually went out and became her own entrepreneur, produced her own films, and then donated the proceeds from her perfume sales to Amphar and to help fund uh, research for um, AIDS treatments. So all of those things combined, I think any generation can see, wow, this is a life worth taking a second look at. That's a lot to take. That's a lot to take on. That's a lot. It's a lot. So that's why I really chose just to focus with the show on a very specific part of her early life to see what goes into making someone have that. Like, what are the ingredients necessary to finding that confidence? And what happens to a person that they have to overcome? Because she had to, she wasn't handed everything. She had to overcome a lot of obstacles and adversity and there was a lot of trauma in her early life aside from just being a child star because we know how that can warp someone she did have a, a couple of big life events happen that i talk about in the show that you're like wow she was only 18 when that happened to her oh my gosh that would have you know wrecked me but somehow she chose to go forward and overcome it and she addressed life on her own terms and i think now more than ever it's important for all of us to find out what makes us tick and what what really is the whole point what we love and go after that so that's what i hope people take away is trying to just express love for for what makes them happy and what what you love and how to make others happy that's the whole point amen to that yeah it's wonderful to hear these stories about these these women pioneers we've had uh, authors on to talk about mary pickford and marion davies and you know, Lucille Ball, we've, you know, it's come up a lot. And Catherine and Hepburn, yeah. Catherine, yeah, all right. these different women that come up that you that you see as starlets or, you know, you think about first and foremost for their looks uh, or the or the controversies of the relationships, you know, the Ava Gardeners that, you know, just want to tell their own story and who were really, they did a lot for not only them, their own career, but other women and, and blazed trails for everyone who's, you know, got the Oscars coming up in a, in a month or so, you know, it wouldn't be possible without a lot of these women. It's so true. I mean, and Elizabeth Taylor, some people call her Elizabeth the first in a way of Hollywood. <laughs> Sophia Loren was the first to have a perfume, but Elizabeth was second. And she not used, a surprise, yeah. Not a surprise. <laughs> but both of those beauties, I mean, what a great idea. Like to have like and sense and sensory experiences, just like films and music. We take us back to a place in time, a very specific place. And whether that memory is a happy one or, or sentimental or, or sad, like it's powerful. And then to use that, to use the fame, to use the stature that you've amassed for a purpose other than just a lot of people just retired or had different chapters outside of the public eye. Um, Olivia de Havilland comes to mind. She was very happy just to go to Paris 
and live out a whole other life in wonderful Paris, France, and didn't really do many movies after that point in time. But Elizabeth, even when the scripts became bad, even when um, the projects weren't necessarily terrific, she would take them on and then give her salary away to helping causes. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Doing it strategically and thinking about why you're doing what you're doing and knowing that people watch you, knowing what that power is and the fact that her personal life matched and sometimes even eclipsed her time on screen uh, was quite remarkable. She had probably the, the longest staying power of any celebrity I can think of to be always, always on a magazine cover in the supermarket at any given time. She's She was omnipresent even now. Like there are still covers of her in memoriam or in tribute. You can pick up magazines anywhere and she's still on the cover. And she's been gone over 10 years. Yeah, and still very relevant. The, the, cha- the charity thing is interesting because it's it was deliberate, right? I mean, there's a lot of people these days, especially that, uh, and especially with the notoriety with Twitter and all the other things that, get, you know, support charities just for the sake of supporting a charity, whatever that might be. But her causes were very deliberate. Oh, yes. And she was, you know, one of the very first celebrities to speak out about the AIDS crisis. Now, in part, it was driven by her friendship with Rock Hudson, who was one of the very first prominent people to be um, diagnosed or reveal the diagnosis that he had. But she went ahead and spoke at that charity event that October of that year when it was revealed that he had AIDS. And she got everybody else in Hollywood to to get behind her. And she was actually kind of a bridge between the two charities. There were two AIDS foundations happening on the West Coast and the East Coast that became AMFAR eventually. And she was the connector of the two worlds just by being her presence. People were drawn to her and she knew that. So she used that and leveraged it to facilitate conversations, to say, hey, I'm here. How can I help? Where can I be most useful? whether it's showing up to someone's hospital room and giving them comfort and holding their hand when people were afraid to touch you. If you had AIDS, you weren't, you know, you weren't allowed to be touched because people didn't know how it was transmitted. She wasn't afraid. In that respect, she was rather like Princess Diana, who took a, a, a page from her book of going to where people were neglected and shut out. And she always had a sense for the underdog. As long as you were a good person, she would come to bat for you. And so her real career, in my mind, happened after after the big screen career. It facilitated, it let her have that, that power to affect change. And she was always the first to show up if anybody needed her help. So that, I think, is wonderful, too. Well, it's wonderful for you to have all of those things to potentially bring to the stage in the future. It's it's wonderful that you can play her at age 29 when you are 29. So you're going to have to wait like 40 years to the next <laughs> Elizabeth, right? Right. I should get started on the caftan period, right? Well, like, because that, that means you can wear all the diamonds. I'm just thinking I'm right? just thinking on your behalf. Then you're, you bring, really the, bring, the, really, you're really trying to get these diamonds in there, aren't you? Bring, get the more, bring more the bling, diamonds. Man. I mean, there were rubies and emeralds. See, that's the Elizabeth that I remember that I grew up with was the, you know, that diamond era. Well, she is obviously timeless. Uh, unfortunately, there is a limit on the time that people in Southern California have to see your show. And that's why we wanted to get you on this week. 
Uh, we're going to try to get this episode out as early as we can this week so that people will get out there and get tickets. Friday, uh, February 17th through Sunday, February 19th, it's at Sierra Madre. Tickets can be found at their website, sierramadreplayhouse.org, and at yours, callmeelizabeth.com. Uh, go purchase them if you're in the LA area. You won't regret it. And uh, we just want to find out what's next for you, and more importantly, when are you bringing the show to Seattle? Well, I would love to bring the show to Seattle. If you know a theater there, let me know. Oh, we know th- we know theaters. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing I, we know, it's probably theaters. It's probably theaters. That's exciting. Well, I am hoping to continue touring the show across the country this year. I have a couple of bookings coming up. I can't give specifics, but it is coming to Chicago in June and then New York in July. And then it will be at the Edinburgh Fringe in August this this year. And beyond that, your guess is as good as mine, but I am wide open. I would love to share the story with whoever would like to hear it because I think, again, whether you're into stories of strong females or just inspirational lives in general or just want to pick me up, I think Elizabeth Taylor still holds huge sway and we can all learn a little bit from how to live a great full life and that's what it's all about. So I thank you so much, both of you, for the opportunity to appear on on this wonderful program. And I'm looking forward to weekend number two of sharing this story with the audiences of Pasadena and Sierra Madre. And that incidentally is Frank Ferrante's home theater, correct? It is indeed. And that is the connection. Yes. It's all thanks to Frank. I wonder, we're trying to get him to come to Seattle, too. Yes, we got to get everybody <laughs> yes. up here. Yes. Yeah. So we found Frank, uh, found you through Frank's social media. Are you out on, on social media? How can people learn to, about what's going on in, in your world? And is there anything that's not Elizabeth Taylor related that you're working on? <laughs> that's a great question. Yes. I try to keep my personal social media updated. Kayla Boy on Instagram or KaylaBoy.com for my other pursuits outside of this show. I am working on a piece I'm hoping to do in Chicago in March. I'm hoping to do a production of Samuel Beckett's Happy Days, which if you're familiar with that show, it is pretty much another one-woman show, but I didn't write it, so it's a little harder to memorize. (laughs) Uh, It's always easier when you're the playwright. You can just change the words if you don't feel like saying it, even though I, I try not to do that. But this one, Happy Days, is about a woman later in life and she is kind of deciding like what is her next chapter and if you're familiar with the play she's buried up to her waist for act one and then act two she's buried up to her neck it's a very meta experience theater of the absurd um so that is (laughs) so you know a friend of mine approached me uh john dombacher he's a wonderful director and he said you know i know you've done your elizabeth taylor show but here's another one i think you should seriously consider it's essentially a solo show and I think it'd be a great challenge and I love to work with you. So the two of us are hoping to mount that sometime soon in Chicago. And if I can do that, I can say, well, I can do, I can do all kinds of solo shows. <laughs> Here's one more question around, around that. So we've seen uh, a number of one person shows come through Seattle this year, especially it seems like there's been a bunch of them. Uh, eventually, as we follow these artists, they hand the shows off to someone else so they can go work on other stuff. Is that something you would foresee doing, whether it was uh, 
another Elizabeth Taylor project or just another project that you could hand this off to somebody else so that it would keep going? I think I would say to that, when I age out of it, please, by all means, someone else take it up. But for now, I'm really still finding the story and it keeps coming to life for me in new and interesting ways. So I, I really want to get as much as I can out of it. But yes, I, the whole point is to share the story with as many people as possible. So if like a licensing opportunity were to come along, um, I am very interested in that, but I know that like Frank Ferrante, for instance, like he is the definitive Groucho Marx interpreter, uh, carrier of the flame as it were. And not that, Anyone has any like you know? I claim this is my this is my role. Uh, it's all it's all in the eyebrows though. See, it's all it's in the eyebrows. All in the eyebrows. It's all in the eyebrows. I would like to try as much as I can to to really uh, spread this as much as I can while while I can. But yes, I think versatility and variety is the spice of life. So I think it's important to be as a as an actor stimulated by other kinds of work. So yes, I am all about keeping my portfolio varied by doing all kinds of different projects and that keeps you engaged and active and learning. You never want to just settle and stagnate. Uh, that's when you, that's when you stop. So I'm all about adding on, exploring more details, different facets, and every day is a new day to, to learn more things. Awesome. Well, this has been uh, a real pleasure. It's uh, the perfect amalgamation of stage and screen for us, bringing the screen to the stage. And uh, we hope you'll keep us up to date on your future projects, be they Elizabeth Taylor related or otherwise. Uh, everybody needs to get out and see the show that's in the area and uh, check out the tickets, SierraMadrePlayhouse.org and CallMeElizabeth.com. And we, uh, we're going to do our best to get the word out. Thanks again for taking the time with us this evening. Thank you both. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. And again, I really appreciate the coverage of the production and of this story. I think it, it deserves to be seen. So if you're in the area, please come see us. And, and thank you again for your time. And even if you're not in the area and need to escape this rain we've got in Seattle, fly to some sun. <laughs> yes, it's a short trip. Flights really are relatively affordable. Yes. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, hey, break a leg this weekend. Uh, we hope you got big sold-out crowds, and uh, next time you see Frank, give him our love. I shall. Thank you both right. so much. Right, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Kayla. Well, thank you again to our guest, Kayla Boy. Her one-woman show, Call Me Elizabeth, plays for one more weekend at the Sierra Madre Playhouse outside L.A., Friday, February 17th through Sunday, February 19th. Get your tickets now at sierramadreplayhouse.org and at callmeelizabeth.com. You can keep up with Kayla on her website, kaylaboy.com, and find her on Facebook and Instagram. All linked in the show notes. And make plans to join us again in two weeks, Friday, March 3rd, when we'll welcome to the show Patricia Ward-Kelly, widow and official biographer of the truly marvelous Gene Kelly. Patricia will be in Seattle March 17 through 19 to host a one-of-a-kind event at the Seattle Symphony, Gene Kelly, A Life in Music. Get your tickets now at seattlesymphony.org and don't miss episode 72 on March 3rd. And if you enjoyed episode 71, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. You can find all the latest on highlandandhaver.com along with all of our past episodes, stage reviews, and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and Behind the Scenes Artist Interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. 